You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Today, we are joined by David Rodelitz, the founder and CEO of BCR Group. He is also a 20-year-plus restaurateur entrepreneur from New York City. He is also the founder and CEO of Flyfish Club, the world's first members-only private dining club with membership purchased on the blockchain by NFTs. We talk about the past and future of restaurants, how the hospitality game has changed during the pandemic, and why he is bullish on the whole Web3 blockchain NFT movement. Later on, we dip into the archives with a set by the Pachecos. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm joined today by David Rodelitz, uh, the founder and CEO of VCR Group. David, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Yeah, uh, we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, you have been in the hospitality game for 20 plus years um, in one of the hardest cities in the world to do it. Where did you get your start? What was your first uh, event? How did you catch the hospitality bug? I mean, I've been entrepreneurial since I've been about 14 years old, local bowling alley, pizza delivery guy, uh, high school, started doing these after prom events where I would bus, you know, teenagers out to the city, rent out nightclubs, you know, obviously no alcohol at the time, and just kind of had an interest for putting things together. Um, I just kind of enjoyed the logistics, the operations, and I had a big social network. And then that just continued to evolve. In college, I started an event planning company that uh, my wife and a couple other people run now, and it still operates. We do corporate events, not-for-profits, and seminars. And it just like became natural to me. Um, so through my kind of college to mid-20s, I had this nightlife promotions and marketing company that planned events, that took over you know, nightclubs, lounges, I then moved into ownership and operations, where I would own a lot of these lounges and nightclubs and bars. And then late 20s just felt like a change was needed. It wasn't, you know, I didn't see that being sustainable. Um, And at a similar time, I met a really talented chef, Alex Stupak. Um, We had a mutual friend. And long story short, we teamed up, co-founded, I co-founded Empeon with Alex. And we opened the first one in 2011. And for nine years or eight and a half years, I was just head down, you know, operating, being the operating partner of that business. You know, we've got five stores now, a couple under development. I don't operate at all anymore. About a few years ago, I stepped away from the day to day and uh, did some other stuff, kind of consulting over COVID, you know, just to remain kind of liability light during a very volatile time. And I helped a few groups try to figure stuff out through COVID. And um, Gary Vaynerchuk, very close friend of mine, he's also invested in some of my previous projects. And we just spent a lot of time together over COVID talking about, you know, what happens if you marry up, you know, tech and media on top of hospitality? What does that create? Um, can, can we enhance the business model? Because as you said, it's a challenging industry. Um you know, just had fun talking about all these different ideas with the general premise of leveraging media and technology, you know, in all forms of hospitality. Similarly, I was uh, very close with Josh Capon, who's, uh, you know, a very loved uh, chef in the New York, New Jersey area. And he and I were also having a t- conversation about trying to do stuff. Um, the three of us at the time formed VCR Group, which is our parent hospitality company. After we formed it, there was another chef. Um, that we knew very well that uh, became available. We brought him into the company as well on a partner level. And VCR Group started last year. We've hit the ground running. Uh, we co-own Ito in Tribeca with uh, Masa Ito and Kevin Kim, which is debatably the best you know, sushi omakase restaurant right now in New York City. Um, these two guys are fantastic. We've got Flyfish. You know, we, we launched that NFT concept uh, early this year. Um, and have a lot of plans with that business and a couple other things that are in the pipeline that hopefully people will see in the next year or two. 
Uh, we're definitely going to get into fly fish. Uh, just uh, kind of curious because you've been in it for so long. You kind of have these stories of people like, you know, you booked a DJ or someone that like at the time was unknown, but uh, kind of like came up as big star. Anybody from your past days at Impulse or your early like uh, that, like went on to become like big DJ, music, big chef. Oh, um I mean, a lot of them. I mean, DJ Chachi was a close friend and became a very big DJ. Um, we did a lot of stuff with all the guys, you know, Ruckus, DJ Berry. I mean, all these guys were a part of a lot of the stuff that we were doing. Um, you're really bringing me back to my past. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, we had a lot of people around us that were all just having a good time, having fun. And then they, you know, continue to leverage it and, you know, become big in, you know, whatever they were focused on. Um, you mentioned Stubak, who actually was a former guest on on Snacky Tunes. The, the empire they built with MPON was like pretty incredible. Um, as you evolved from you know kind of day to day operations um, and taking things to as you say like in the digital space, what are some of the lessons in hospitality that translate into an online world? Well, I mean we're, we're very much an in real life you know hospitality group. Like you know we leverage technology, we leverage media, but you know we're not, this isn't a metaverse play. This isn't a culinary experience. You know, we do do virtual events with Capon, you know, where we'll produce those things. Um, so, I mean, I, I think in its simplest form, like, you know, hospitality still remains the most important component, taking care of people. You could do that in person. You could do that digitally, you know, really engaging with people, having a good time and like, you know, just putting on an experience for people, whether it's, you know, in person at a restaurant, whether it's an event we're producing, or whether it's, you know, through a screen, you know, Josh Capon is incredible at that. We'll, we'll produce these virtual events with big companies and, you know, he finds a way to really interact with all these people. And, you know, it was, it was, there was a very big need for it over COVID, right? People weren't really going out. Um, so we found a way to connect with people and bring them together and have fun. And it might not be the same as being in, in a restaurant, but um, I think just, you know, people want to, enjoy themselves. They want to learn. They want to have fun. They want to laugh and just not taking yourself too seriously, having a good time with them. Uh, we're going to get into the ins and outs of Fly Fish Club. But before we do that, um, I, I'm curious how COVID um, shaped your thinking and your perception of the hospitality industry and how it maybe um, influenced the, the need and desire to bring Web3 into um, into the mix. Listen, I, I, I think COVID... You know, I think the problems of the industry were long lasting way before COVID. I think COVID accelerated a lot of things or kind of shined a light on the inefficiencies or how how troubling the general, you know, model that we all worked on, you know, was. I mean, you kill yourself, you know, you you, you design these restaurants, you raise a bunch of money, you build this beautiful place, you know, you, you're relying on tipped employees to provide a guest experience that, that aren't really your full-time employee. <laughs> you know, there's it, all these variables and lucky to squeeze out 15% if you're, if you're hitting it hard and doing well with a lot of room for error. You know, occupancy cost continues to rise, minimum wage, all these things. You know, the, the pie is only so big, but um, all these ancillary components um, absorb too much of it. So... I, I think COVID, you know, was a was a wake up call for a lot of people. I think it was a reset for people where they were like, do I really need to be in New York to do what I do, to do what I love? You saw a lot of talent leave the city to go to other markets. So I think it was just an accelerator. Um, 
you know, for me over COVID, you know, I, I, I teamed up with a few different groups where the first time in my life, like I kind of, everything I've always done was for myself. I always, you know, I created projects, brands, you know, venues. And uh, for the first time, I kind of packaged all those services into something that, you know, I thought made sense for other groups. And the goal for me was just create value. Like I, I was, you know, kind of just like trying to figure out stuff myself. And I knew that it was a challenging time. So, you know, how do you get through it? Uh, the, you know, the, the government funding programs, you know, how do you operate in, in this, you know, challenging way? How do you stay, you know, how do you keep clean and healthy and, you know, make sure safety is top of mind? You know, how do you create a social experience when, you know, generally it was, it was forbidden to, you know, socialize with people. It was, it was crazy. Um, you know, so we, we did the best we could, had a couple, you know, had a couple great clients. And then, you know, there was last year felt comfortable to start taking big swings again and, and going out on my own. Great. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break, uh, play a song from the archives, and then we'll be back with David to chat uh, all things Fly Fish Club here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
seems to tear at my already bleeding feet And I wish I knew your body pressing up against me For the uninitiated, what is Fly Fish Club? It's a members club where membership is purchased on the blockchain. So it's, you know, it's a dining club similar to a solo house. The, the difference is that our members own their membership. You know, they could sell it. They could keep it for the rest of their lives. They actually, it's, it's flipping the membership model on its head from going from something that you just kind of, you know, rent and enjoy every year until you don't want to use it anymore to ownership via NFT technology. But it's so very much people, a real life club. Yeah. I think so many people got into or know or think of Web3 as like DeFi or speculation or cryptocurrency. And Flyfish was actually one of the first projects to come out that gave something of value where Web3 was like the was the tool, but not the main focus. Um, What did you see as a 20 plus year uh, restaurateur that made this different than your general membership? And, And what do you feel this unlocks for you in future projects? Yeah. I mean, listen, we're hospitality guys. We're not Web3 guys. You know, right. like the right. partnership of Gary that provided some insight of what he was seeing. You know, he's a trailblazer in, you know, Web3 and NFTs and all of that stuff. And, you know, he, Gary doesn't predict the future, but he has a good sense, of, you know, from consumer behavior of, of where people are going based on current, you know, activities. So, you know, we got very excited about that and, and came up with our use case for, you know, Fly Fish Club and NFTs. Um, repeat the second part of that question quickly. Oh, uh, what does this unlock for you as a wrestler? Like, like what's, I mean, before you used to go have a concept, as you said, raise money. What does this change for you uh, for the next 20 years? It changes a lot. I I think first and foremost, there's actually a community of people. You know, we were were the first, in my opinion, you know, utility-based NFT project, at least at scale that came out when, when everyone was talking about collectibles and IP and digital assets. Like this isn't a speculative investment for people. This isn't about, you know, is this artwork beautiful or valuable or not? I'm not claiming that those things are or are not of value. I'm saying that in the macro, we believe NFT technology is going to be around forever and it's going to change the way people do business. And at its core, it authenticates ownership through the blockchain. Everything in our lives is about ownership, you know, owning something, transferring something, you know, so we believe that that's going to play a role. Um, and we found this use case of flip the membership model on its head via NFTs and give everybody a different value proposition. So, you know, you're, you don't own any, you know, part of the club, you own your membership, which gives you access as a finite amount. And it's just a different business model, right? We, you know, through this, through the launch of the NFTs, you know, we generate a lot of revenue um, from that. Then from there, there's a royalty component. So every time somebody sells their token um, on the secondary market, which we don't control because it's your asset, we get a percentage of that. And then the last part is, you know, restaurant EBITDA or hopefully your restaurant revenue exceeding your restaurant, you know, expenses. And for the most part, that's all 
us operators always focused on was that it was that third, you know, tier. And now through this, we have a few tiers. Um, I'd argue that allows us to be a little bit more hospitable, you know, just by just by form that we um, don't have to be as transactional. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you might want to do as a restaurateur and operator. You might want to give your GM five grand more. You might want to, you know, not forward all those costs onto the consumer when, you know, avocados go up in price. There's all these things that you might want to do, but you might not be able to because you just don't have margin, right? Like you ultimately are thinking about your business model and, and being there for a long time. And you might not be able to make certain adjustments where here, I would say that we have a little bit more of a of a cushion because of a few ways of of re- revenue generation um, that that I'm forecasting will allow us to be more hospitable and less transactional um, in everything that we do. I, I think also anything else I've done before this, as, as I'm proud of everything, I've never seen such a community. It's like we have all these brand ambassadors that are thousands of them that are running around and are pumped and. We're spending time with these people. We're engaging with them, and in real life, we're doing all these events. And you know what? What I would say that we built in the last seven months of Flyfish Club and this community, and everybody really, you know, believing in this. It, it, I feel more brand connectivity with these people than things I've been involved in for ten plus years. It's just there's an alignment, and there's an excitement, and there's a movement, and I think a lot of people um, are excited about this innovation. And one like being a part of things that are new and obviously social currency is a thing where people get to flex digitally what they like and what their passions are and, you know, some of that NFT stuff. And, you know, I think we, we dabble in a four or five different things that came together at the end of last year, beginning of this year that created a, a you know, a lot of momentum for us at the time. So I don't know if everything we're going to, you know, we have traditional restaurants, We've got this. We build a lot of content online through the the Capon IP brand on all the different social channels, you know. But again, this media and tech filter, you know, being applied to everything we do, we think is hopefully going to set us apart. It's really interesting. We, you know, we did interviews throughout the whole pandemic, um, and one of the trends that we saw was diversification of revenue. You know, no one was just opening up a forty-four seat restaurant. It had like a deli. Right, right. Yeah. Like they were like, okay, I'm never going to rely on this again. What's interesting about what you're saying. And and again, like I didn't really think about this is that it gives you a few more levers that didn't really exist before. Right. Um, You have your core go to market strategy because you've got people who are just like talking about it. You've got upfront revenue that's not just going out to, you know, it's almost like lanyap, as we say in the South, it's just extra. Um, And then you just have like buzz that's not reliant on media all these things that really didn't exist before in a way to um, to do that. Now, you're who you are and Gary is who he is. Um, do you see this model being able to tread down? I can see larger restaurateurs being able to use it, but do you see an up-and-coming chef with maybe not the same network or something like that being able to pull on the same levers of, of NFT and Web3? Yeah, we saw a lot of people after we made our announcement – you know, follow suit. And um, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of them are going to work out because I think their intentions are a little bit backwards and they're, I think they're more financially driven. And that's why they're like, oh, we got to hop on Web3 and NFTs and throw any trigger word we can to something to try to create 
attention. That wasn't how we did it. We, we, we found this Web3 application and we're like, this is going to enhance this business. This is going to enhance the value proposition for our guests. This is going to innovate around something that's been around for generations, uh, a new way. So, you know, I believe our intentions were just, they drive everything and they're pure um, and they just amplify everything. I'm concerned that a lot of people are just going to jump in and they don't really, aren't really thinking about how does this make something better? If it doesn't make something better for your, your team, your partners, your investors, your, your guests, then I, I think it's going to be vulnerable. Um, I think there's also another component that, you know, people, you know, Gary has a massive platform. Gary is a trailblazer in that space. So he's built, you know, uh, a tremendous foundation and has created a lot of value for a lot of people over, you know, over his last 15, 20 years of, of doing stuff. And I think that that gave us a big advantage, you know, as a big microphone. Obviously, our, our plans have to make sense and we have to execute, but it, it gave us a lot of attention up front that I, I, you know, it doesn't just happen that you come up with an NFT product and everybody knows about it. If you look on, you know, most of the projects stay e-liquid, you know, because you know, there's so many that were just made without really any real plans. And, you know, there's just too much. There's too much supply. Um, you know, we're focused on utility and, and, and leveraging the tech to make everything better. And I think that that's very present. I think our, our community sees that, um, you know, so I don't know if it's going to trickle down to everybody. Again, I do think NFTs are going to serve a purpose for all businesses, you know, including the hospitality industry, um, you know, how people apply it, what they do with it, you know, is going to be TBD. But I think right now there's kind of reset, you know, obviously the, the NFT, the crypto market, all financial markets have taken a large hit. Um, personally, I think it's probably good, you know, for this, it, it removes some of that froth. Uh, you know, a lot of people were making a lot of money very quickly and thought that that was what it was. And now I think like the start of social media, the start of the internet, you know, there's going to be regulation, you know, people are actually going to have to come out with thoughtful plans and, and, you know, do real work and provide value for people. And the companies that do that well are going to shine and we'll, we'll be there for, you know, the next, you know, long term. But just because, the, you know, there was a lot of busts in the, in, in the dot-com era, there's a, a bunch of champions that made it through and are some of the biggest companies that exist today. So, you know, it's like anything. You got to perform. You got to execute. You know, we're, we're focused on the first fly fish club. But yes, if it, if it works and we execute as we plan um, and everybody seems to enjoy that, we're going to try to scale that into other markets. I'm curious. Um the, the way the NFT works is it gives you access to the club itself. And, and no, this is a speculative question, but I'm sure you've thought about it. How do you balance the exclusivity of the membership with making sure that the dining room is always full and that there's a dynamic guest list? Because, you know, the, yeah. the NFTs are, you know, global assets. It's not like a local membership. What are your thoughts around how to kind of make sure that the dining room is always lively? Yeah, so... Very good question. Definitely a part of, you know, a lot of the time we spent over last year, you know, thinking through this and all the different ways that this could go well or not go well. You know, what we did was half the inventory was, was um, you know, put up for minting. 
you know, the minting process is converting a digital file into a digital asset. Um, of that 1500, there was a, a whitelist of people that um, have helped us get to where we are and we want to show appreciation to. So about 20% of the 1500, you know, are, are local people that we knew and people that love food and beverage and experience and travel. And, and I think fit that sweet spot of what their enjoyment is. You know, then yes, the other 1,200, it could be people from anywhere because there was no vetting process besides for just, you know, the technology behind it, knowing how to buy an NFT, setting up a MetaMask, getting, you know, cryptocurrency like Ethereum. So there, there's a bit of vetting by by means of what the project entailed. Um, but yeah, 1,200 of the 1,500 could be anybody. So what we did to hedge against that is I cloned a duplicate set um, there was another 1,500 tokens that I held back. I held back um, for that exact purpose. So the total collection is about 3,035 tokens. 1,500 were, were set aside where every day, every week, we're, we're selling tokens one by one to people that are only in the New York area, that are value-add to the community. And you know we believe that those efforts through our networks and our relationships and all being local New York, New Jersey guys. Um, we believe that, the, you know, the people that we're selling to, you know, entrepreneurs, creatives, philanthropists, athletes, influencers, you know, you know, executives, um, celebrities, all of the above is going to create, um, you know, a good mix of people that are going to make this, uh, community vibrant and fun and collaborative. And that's how we've hedged against it. Interesting. Makes, makes sense. Um, and like any, you know, good community, it's both deliberate and also, um, experimental. Um, we are late summer, early fall around the, the taping time of this 2022. Uh, I'm curious in the last few minutes I have you, um, Roadmap. Where where are you? Um, it's very public on your website, which is really great. I think the the U uh, the UX is really awesome with the like circles and the check marks. Where are you, and like how are things uh, looking, kind of yeah. given the the global setting? So the only way we felt confident to launch when we did, which was January, without having the restaurant club, which is you know a large part of the value proposition. The only way we felt comfortable going to mint without this club opening until 2023 was to create a very legitimate, robust roadmap. Um, and a lot of people just throw around that word and it's like, there's really nothing on that, that they're actually doing. You know, they say, Oh, we're going to do events. We're going to do merch. We're going to build a great community. Um, we actually, you know, we, we produced seven or eight very large scale, serious events from, you know, in different cities in Miami in the Hamptons in Minneapolis um, really spending a lot of time and spending a lot of money on our community and producing, I think, these one-of-a-kind events that um, are really enjoyable for, for the community. We then simultaneously have done about 10 virtual events where, you know, Capon and, and Connor will, you know, do cooking classes, demonstrations. We'll do those once a month or bi-monthly, um, you know, and large corporations pay Josh, you know, large figures to spend an hour with him digitally. And these are all things that come with the Flyfish membership. We do a virtual wine tastings very quarterly. Actually, tonight we have one. And again, you know, some people would spend $50,000 for an hour with Gary, 
you know, and, and, you know, with the Flyfish membership, you're on with Gary, we're doing Q and A's, we're talking, we're hanging, we're educating you about wine. So our roadmap is, in my opinion, you know, plans that weren't just thrown together to, um, you know, get to the finish line. They're things that we believe in, that we believe are enhancing, you know, people's experiences. And we're leaning into our skill sets of hospitality and cooking and um, putting on events and pulling from all of our our toolboxes to, to, to really give value to the community. And, you know, the club's going to open next year, but I do believe that there's going to be an updated roadmap, even though that wasn't a part of what we promised. Our goal is to exceed expectations. Our goal is when people are questioning Flyfish Club that we come over the top and do something more, do something exciting that just continues to build this community. We don't want anybody to ever think twice about why they got, a, got involved in this. So right now, my team and I, we're head down thinking about 2023, what extra value, what new things, what do we run back that went so well in 2022? What do we you know, keep for the future? Because it's just so fun and great. What new things, what new experiences keeps the community on their feet and gets them pumped to you know, check in on us? And what, what blends well with what Flyfish Club means and represents and you know, ultimately that filter is, has to always be there. You know, we're not going to do something that makes no sense. Like, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know, just something that doesn't really represent our brand, but social experiences, food and beverage, hospitality, spending time with people, one of a kind events, education on food. Um, you know, that's what we're going to continue to lean in on. Amazing. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate the uh, alpha on this and the insights on it. Um, where right. can people get more information? Where can they, uh, you know, attempt to get this on the secondary market? How do they get involved? Yeah, I mean, our, our website, flyfishclub.com, all of our social handles at Flyfish Club on, on Instagram, on Twitter, join our Discord, which, you know, a lot of activities happening in there. Sometimes the, the, the beginning of anything that we do starts there and then goes to social. Um, so, and then, you know, if, if people feel confident, like what we're doing and want to participate, you could just go to OpenSea. There's a secondary market, search Flyfish Club. Um, fortunately for us, it's a, it's a very small supply, which means that we're doing something well. Most projects have hundreds of thousands of, you know, people trying to sell their tokens. Again, that, kind of flip NFT nature of, of people getting behind projects, you know, more collectible based projects. Ours is, you know, this is access to a club. You own that. This isn't about, you know, artwork or collectible. And I think that is shown, you know, very, very well on OpenSea where there might be 20, 30 tokens for sale at most, um, you know, well above our mint prices where, you know, I don't really focus on the floor or the mint prices, but I think it just shows the health of the of the supply demand dynamic, and that there people that participate are are getting value and want to stay in, and their intentions are long to be with us to build the you know to be a part of this as we grow this out and you know to be around for a long time. Yeah, amazing. Um, Thank you. Uh, we are going to play another song from our archives and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HRN. 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are at the legendary Danger Bird Records studio in beautiful Silver Lake. (laughs) We are with Tropa Magica. The Pacheco brothers, David and Renee, welcome to Snacky Tunes. 
That's Renee's mating call. We're actually only doing answers uh, in whistle form only, so you are all set. Interesting. Interesting insight. Um, so, so leave the smoke signals outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys are brothers. Uh, who's the older brother? Uh, we like to play around with people, so uh, depends depends on the day of the week. Depends so, on the day. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> Renee could be the older one, sometimes I could be the older one. All right. Um, so did you guys grow up playing together when you guys start getting into music? Mom and dad into music? Grandpa, grandma into music? No, we were just always together. Um, we grew up together, bonded at a very early age. And and as we became teenagers, we, we went our own separate routes, but we were eventually reunited, not just by music, but also by marijuana. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Renee caught me uh, smoking weed. I started smoking <laughs> weed a little bit before him, and um, I would smoke it outside of the house. It smelled and, good. And then he's just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I'm like, you want to try it? And, uh, and then If it you was, don't even try it, I'm going to tell my mom. Oh yeah, that's always a good thing, you know. As as a brother, the way they let your let your brother do things, be like, I'm gonna tell mom and dad. Yeah, and then uh, and then we had a day where we both stitched, and uh, we bought like a gram of. Um, at the time, there wasn't it wasn't clinical weed. It was um, yeah. either got like a Pretendo or like uh or like Chronic was the chronic. main thing, and Kush was coming out. Kush oh, was yeah. like twenty five bucks yeah. a gram. Or we something. got Chronic though, and it's the best I've ever heard. The Doors, uh, Riders on the Storm. Yeah. yeah, I think the Doors were meant for uh, smoking weed or yeah, we maybe. We got to do the stoner things, you know? Yeah, because I mean, I, I've been smoking weed long enough. And I mean, there's a lot of people out there who smoke weed like like at, at, in big amounts to the point where like the best high you're ever going to get was when you first tried it. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, because, man, those are one of the days where I was like, oh, man, this is something. Now I'm just like, I can like you know, function with it. So it's a little different. But when, when I get to remember back to those days, riding on the storms, leaning my head, thinking I'm floating, but I'm falling off the couch. You know, it was cool, man. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. So when did you guys go from smoking weed and listening to music to smoking weed and making music? Uh, right away. Um, once we, once like, we kind of were, like, both smoking weed, because at the time, like, it was, it was still taboo. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, you're not supposed to be smoking weed. Once we started doing that... Um, Especially we, with, like, a Mexican family. Yeah, we started we started bonding, and, like, our interests started kind of bonding as well, you know, forming together, and... and I, and we, like, would, I, we would I got go to, to shows just to smoke weed sometimes. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. I couldn't smoke at the house, and, like, I wasn't young enough to, like, go my... Or I wasn't old enough to go to my own places. But you're like, let, just, let him take me to shows. It's a safe spot. Yeah, yeah we kind of. To, we would go to places like the Smell or like backyard shows or oh, like yeah. Hair Space. Um, it's not there anymore, but uh, right there um, on Glendale used to be right there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we would go to those spots. They were all ages spots and you could smoke and yeah. Was, yeah, like anybody who's like trying to try something new outside of your limits, you know, you're you're going to end up betraying either your parents' trust a little bit, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, they have their way of... But it's not supposed yeah. to be mean. It's just yeah, you got to yeah. be... You gotta yeah, be I didn't do it as an offense to them. I yeah. just really dug it. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, it uh, was. And it kept me out of trouble. <laughs> so uh, being Mexican in, like, the punk rock scene, like, with the yeah. smell, things like that, which is not always... I mean, it's n mostly white at times, like those, like, DIY underground scenes. Yeah. Where did you guys feel that you fit in? What did you guys want to do musically? Like, what did you... Or did you just never even see that because you both you it was just like we love the music, race is not an issue at all. Yeah, surprisingly for us, yeah. it was never an issue. Like um, we would see like it wasn't until we went to college and we took our first like Chicano studies yeah. class yeah. that we started like I, I blame college actually for like 
No. It was racist. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know racism existed until I went to college. No, it's no. kind of true. Like you know, you understand like uh, so, like uh, like social like it, structures. It leaves and, you mad, but I mean, so if you can um, if you can like find a, a solution to like to you know like know that about you and kind of go your way and like it kind of makes you stronger. You know, like, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. A stranger. A stranger. So, yeah. so we embraced, like, uh, all types of music. Like, when we were going to the Smell, this was a t- around the time when, like, Mika Miko and oh, No yeah. Age were blowing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah because uh, when so we still... Mid-late mid- 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah because uh, being Mexican in the punk scene, like, that's all I saw at backyard shows. Like, everybody, you know, like, we yeah. all looked like I remember we saw Fiddler, like, at the Five Star oh, Bar. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah and, but it was, like, our, our interest in music that took us other, uh, you know, other places, and we weren't really thinking, like, racism, racism. We were just very and, much and thinking it, melodies, cool structures, about, rhythms. The cool thing about the LA underground scene was that it was a lot different than the East LA backyard punk scene because in the East LA backyard punk scene, it was very like everything was the same. It felt like everybody was trying to sound either as hard as, and heavy as you could or as skull as you could. But with like places like the Smell and Paris Space or like the little places that were around at the time, the, the Echo Curio on Sunset, there was the Al-K Gallery. Right there on Glendale too. Yeah, Those that's places true. like booked a lot of different types of bands. Like, you know, you had the Meishi or you had like oh, yeah. um you heard of them? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, like, I remember so when Echo was, Park was like starting to pick up its pace. Before like, for like, this, like, like, like music at its, scene that at it its birth of gentrification, like you yeah. know. But like we didn't even know that term at the time. We just knew that like as there was bit. something going on, and we're like, and then it was until later, we're like, oh, that's yeah. the term for that. Yeah, because we were still kids, you know. As kids, you grow up, you're sort of thinking, Kinda like, naive. everything's pretty, everything's beautiful, the world, and then you sort of learn the truth a little bit here and there, and you're kind of like, oh shit. And so that 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 doesn't like we tried not to let that affect us as creatives. We try to just sort of like understand that, you know, um, understand the truth and let that help us continue to grow as creatives. Awesome. Well, let's hear a song, and then we're gonna get back into when we come back, we'll talk about. The first band, how you guys started to start defining your sound. Yeah, uh, definitely. What's the first song you guys gonna play? Uh, we're gonna the first song we're gonna play is called uh, Morena. Okay, cool. Yeah. Any story behind it? Uh, Morena had actually started with a riff that Jason would play uh, on uh, like at sound checks, and, and I'm like, hey, play that riff again, and then we wrote a melody around it and some chord structure. Oh yeah, around do you want to shout out the other two guys in the room? Yeah, so we have Davis on piano. Uh, he plays piano, keyboard, uh, or like synth, organ kind of sounds. Uh, and then uh, Jason, who's been with us, he's actually been a fan of of our music since like before Tropa Magica, and he he once posted a video on Instagram where he's uh, playing one of our songs, and then four months later he joined the band. <laughs> that has got to be the most awesome, surreal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a good day. That was a good call or email, and right? It's funny because he was joking around saying, "Oh, you're hired," and four months later, sure enough, <laughs> man. There you go. Hey, dream big. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Take a risk. All right, here we go. Uh, Tropa, Tropa Mahika live on Snacky Tunes at Dangerbird Record Studios.
that rips. Ooh, that rips real hard. Thank you. Um, so, before you were the band that you are now, you actually had an earlier iteration, uh, The Commons. Yeah. And uh, you guys, in addition, that also sort of defined a new type of sound um, that was sort of like cumbia, but like your own sort of like punk rock thing. So, how did you guys start your first band? When did you guys decide that you wanted to play together? And then how do you start to define your sound, especially when it was something completely new? We decided to play together when David needed a drummer. Oh. And I already had been practicing drums myself. And you had the blackmail weed thing on there, too. <laughs> so everything fell into place from there. Yeah, and then, like, coming out of the, like, experiencing the L.A. scene around that time, you know, like, late 2000s, you know, before 2010, um, it was very interesting because at that same time we started, we went to college, you know, we had dropped out of like college, like community college, and we were just working, trying to do music. And, yeah. uh, and then we decided to go back to school. And it was around that time where we started like, um, kind of like embracing our roots more and trying to like find like our, our identity per se. And, um, we started listening to more of, uh, like, I guess like regional music you know like uh the roots of chicha had a big influence on us but since we had like all this like these years of experience with bands like mika miko meishi you know um it we weren't able gonna we weren't gonna be able to do it authentically anymore so at that point it just that kinda, punk had seeped in yeah at that I point mean, we were like we were trying to get inside of you we were trying to be noage for a good while like we were trying to do it as a two-piece and then Ooh. yeah I, and that was I, hard I, yeah, Kumi is a two-piece. I don't know if that's... Yeah, you need the bass. You need that bass. You need that driving bass. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, we went through, like, a dozen basses, uh, just trying to, like, gel, find our sound, and... Um, find our voice. Yeah. yeah it took us a lot of ingesting to do. We were very curious, so we we were um, disco- um, experiencing a lot of different bands, going to different... You know, just yeah. going to different areas that... Yeah. That, um, and then Boyle Heights, that's when we started noticing uh, more, like... Latino bands, like people that like had similar backgrounds, like as us, where but it was kind of weird because we felt like outcast there because we felt like the music we like was too white, you know, like and they were more like hardcore, like rootsy, like you know, like you got to play cumbia straight up like this, <laughs> and we felt very like, oh, like but left, I like fucking distortion, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, this hit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. did you find as you were sort of defining yourself and you found yourself one foot in, you know, the punk scene? Uh, which is like a, the white scene and then like the Boyle Heights, which is more of yeah. the Mexican scene. Like, how long did it take for you to sort of find comfortability and acceptance with the music you were making? Like, when did that start to gel? Three years. It was, yeah. uh, with the comments, it was three years. It wasn't until we saw this band called uh, Cumbia Queers from Argentina. They mm-hmm. came to to Boyle Heights. They played at this little dive bar. And um, and they, they do like... It's like a bunch of girls, you know, ladies, women. They they do the the cumbia style, and it's very aggressive, like you know, with distortion guitar, distorted guitars. Um, since um, they I don't did think a, it's aggressive. I just think it's unapologetic. Yeah, like they're gonna it, do what they're there to do they and did what they like wanted a, to hear. They did a cumbia version of Iron Man, but Black Sabbath, and that's when Renee and I looked at each other, and we were just like, boom, like light bulb went on, and it's like, it's okay to be different. Like, yeah, because, because prior to hearing them um, play cumbia in that in that in that form in that style, 
in which it wasn't just like your typical clean or not typical. That's that's messed up. Just like it wasn't your clean, traditional. Yeah, it wasn't your cut clean, you know, form of cumbia. This was something a lot more grittier and something that we could accept as like uh, cumbia punk, cumbia punk, us. you know. Yeah. Um, that attitude, like, just really called to us and let us know, like, it's okay what you're doing. You know, like you you guys aren't playing it the way it's supposed to be sounding, but through hearing them. It was like a beautiful blessing, like, keep doing it, keep yeah. doing it. Because they was... did a cover of Iron Man in a cumbia, you know, cumbia style. I'd never heard anything like so that. So it's like, and now, then, so now for you... those of y'all that are listening that don't necessarily know what cumbia is, um, it's very defined by, it's very much defined by its uh, bass rhythms and its percussions. And the percussions would be very much like a, a guido sound, which sounds like a... So any song that's on like 4-4, you can turn it into cumbia. I mean, you guys have been known to cover Nirvana. Yeah, we covered some Nirvana songs. We did, um, I mean, we joked around and played a bunch of different little cumbia melodies. Now, uh, you did the commons for a while. Six years. Six years. And then you decided to change to Tropa Magica. What made the change? Why did you want to change? And was it hard to, I mean, to rebrand yourself as a band, uh, but not changing, like, who you guys are? It was like you, like, one guy left. Yeah. Like, what made you want to decide um, to change it up? And, and how did the fans, how did the people who loved you guys deal with that as well? So this is a three-part question. Three-part question. So um, what made you want to change? What made us want to change? How did that change go? And how did the fans take it? Yeah. My answer for the first one might be different to David's. But for me, it was just very uh, simple. It was an evolution. When we started the first band, it was uh, the, the first name that, or when we started the Commons, the name was just something we grabbed really quick and ran with it because we needed a name. But as we kept growing well, well, as we musicians. What we kind of was like, you know, it wasn't the name that was going to define us. It was our sound that was going to define us. And yeah. And so afterwards we realized like, okay, now we want to switch it up. Because for me, like we had changed as musicians, our sound completely shifted. And so it, it was like. David came up to me and was like, what do you think about changing the band name to this? And at first I struggled, but it immediately became clear to me. It's like, yeah, we've become something else. Mm. We should call ourselves for something. Because now we were able to name ourselves as opposed to just take whatever name we could have. Mm. Yeah, so we, we had a more with... bigger sense of purpose and we knew what we wanted out of what we were going to continue to do. Yeah, because with the Commons, um, what happened was that we had another band called Hello, My Name is Red. Um, the acronyms for that was the HMNR, and uh, we did that for four years, and then we stopped that band to do the Commons, and we had a radio show at KXIU, and they were like, so what should we bill you guys under? And we're like, okay, well, just, we threw that name out there, and then it just kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because we played a show once uh, right before we became the Commons as a no-name band, <laughs> 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 where I did a song without drums. It yeah, was really awkward. What inspired the shift, too, it was also like, you know, um, 2017 for the Commons, our band, it was like, it was a really great year. We played Coachella, you know, we had done Tropicalia. We got a lot of good press, LA Weekly, you know, LA Times, we're talking about our band. And to me, it felt like, it It felt like, all right, what are we going to do as a band that's going to surpass this, that's going to, you know, kind of create the next thing? And, and and in my head, it's just like, there's nothing. We're like, what, we're going to win a Grammy as the Commons? And I, sure. I, I didn't feel that, like that was going to happen with the Commons, so... I was just like, you know, just reinvent ourselves, let it die so that something stronger could come out of it. Like a Pajonix, Phoenix. From the ashes. Yeah. From the fans. 
And the fans come with you? Um, slowly, yeah. Like I think now, like it's gaining more legitimacy as like we got booked for like Desert Days, you know. Yeah, Gloria, I, I think it just took a little while because they they didn't they know what to, songs they, they were going to come in here. You know? They were they were used to hearing the songs that we yeah, had laid yeah, out yeah. for them, but until now, now that we like been producing some work for them to hear, I, I feel like they're kind of like they're okay. The water's it, not that cold. I'm down to dip in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we're touring. And so as people are more getting more excited, like, oh, like we haven't toured like since last year. And we, we were abandoned like constantly tours. So, yeah, like, us now releasing an, an EP singles and an LP coming out. Well, which by the time this airs, it should already be out. It, it creates definitely like a foundation for which previous fans can now base their judgment. Because before, it's just like, oh my God, they're just changing. And there was nothing to back it up unless you're like <laughs> diehard fan, yeah. which we do have our, some. Our, our first uh, show to an audience of Tropa Magica, uh, there were people who showed up. But nobody knew what they were in for. And so it, they didn't know exactly how but, to react. But they, but they were down. <laughs> yeah. They were down and swim with this. Um, awesome. All right. Well, let's hear our next song. What are we going to hear? Uh, the next song is going to be Cupa Cabras to give you an example of the psychedelic cumbia punk version of what we do. Awesome. All right. Cupa Cabras. Here we go.
man that rips it rips so good um so i want to go back a little bit into uh the process of inventing a new sound okay um because i know we touched on it a little bit in the last segment but i really don't want to undermine or underplay really how amazing it is to come up with something that unique and in setting out to do this new sound um did you guys have a conversation about it? Did you guys go, we want to do it? And because I know that you, you've named it the psychedelic cumbia punk. Um, like, when did you realize that you were on this new journey? When did you realize that you had this new sound that did take from, you know, the traditional cumbia sound and the the backyard punk scene? That I think started with the song called "Psychedelic Dream." in which um, it was very guitar-oriented, and then Renee began playing this drum that kind of became our signature kind of sound, guitar and drum sound, which is like what you call it. What do you call that? Like a soca, no? It's not what I call it. It's what it's called. It's called soca. It's and like a, a lot of people, when they hear it, they'll think, oh, it's reggaeton. Yeah. But no, hell no, reggaeton took it from soca. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but... It was definitely a process, and once once we got in that vibe of like, okay, this is our sound, like it just like, you know, and that was always our goal because I feel like any great band, you you recognize them by their sound, you know, you don't yeah. recognize them by their name or their logo. Like I mean, that's obviously that's a factor. Like you know, Rolling Stones have the tongue or something. The Doors have their logo, but you recognize their sound, and then for us that was very important. Like we need to develop a sound that's ours, and so, I mean, we're like, we were we were. Performing with bands like Chicano Batman, you know, um, yeah, um, just like all sorts of bands that were like blowing up, and so the competition was real, you know. And but it was also very cool to see like bands like Chicano Batman like touring with Jack White and like kind of demonstrating that like, hey, like, like making it as a musician is like very possible, you know, coming from East LA, and so. I mean, as you've seen the demographics in America change, because obviously growing up in LA and East LA. Yeah, you know, there's uh, Hispanic, Mexican. Yeah, like it's so it's, you don't feel like a minority in Southern California, right? But once you get out, you know, yeah. uh, oh, and as you see different cities change with different people, do you find more acceptance across uh, the country for your music, or does does that not even play into it? Like, do you just you know now because you have such a unique sound and are well known, it doesn't matter what the community is; people just love the music. I think we were um, no, it does a little bit because when we were the Commons. Yeah. Like, 
you're gonna think like, oh, this might be like a, a garage white, band or something. Sure. White boys garage band. But, but now you hear Trova Manica, then, you know, you might think like, oh, you know, like, just, it's like it's maybe the carnival's band. in town. Yeah. You know? uh, <laughs> uh, and um, what also what, what we were lucky and fortunate and blessed with is that like. You know, we met good, like, networks, you know, like, Burger Records was really interested oh, yeah. in us when, like, this is, like, 2014, and, like, you know, they were they were still doing a lot of stuff, and so when we first toured, they, they presented the tour, which was, like, really cool, because people would come out to shows because we were a burger band, you know, yeah. quote-unquote, like, we were a burger band, and, uh, and they had no idea what we sounded like until they saw, like, like a poster in their local, like, you know, local community, and they're like, hey, there's a burger band. And then they look us up and, like, you know, you guys don't sound like a burger band or look like a burger band. I mean, I have to imagine that the vibe when you guys jump on, especially your, like, normal indie punk show, mm. probably gets a little bit more dancey, a little bit more. Like, do you see kids who normally would maybe just be arms folded or a little bit more stoic, get a little bit more loose? You know, it's a trip because when we tour with Fiddler, we did like three dates with them in San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and, yeah. and Seattle. And you know their their audience is predominantly like white audience, I would yeah. assume. But they have like a good Latino yeah. audience. They have a diverse audience, but it's predominantly white. Yeah. And uh, it was but so they were funny watching them dance cumbia. Yeah, they like they got down like you know it's like the, but it's their like, enthusiasm was just so that like that that's at the end of the day like what you give it up to like it's not to make fun of them you know like why I pointed that out it, it's just that their enthusiasm was in the right place. It's like us like dancing to bands like like we were saying earlier like Mika Miko and stuff and like being brown kids you know dancing to like yeah and it's like that's like yeah we like, look, vice we look, versa. Yeah, now. we look like a Doug Trio, you know, <laughs> causing an earthquake. Um, Pokemon yeah. reference, hey. <laughs> um, let me tell you about a kid that turns into a car one day. <laughs> Inside joke. Um, and so uh, now that you guys, you got the new album coming out, uh, you know, you're playing festivals as the new band. Where do you, where, like, where do you see the band going? Where do you want to go? Because now that you've hit the reset button, like, like you said, you did Coachella, you got people talking about you, but, you know, obviously you want to get that with the new band, but then how do you go beyond what you do with e-commons? Leave the U.S. Yeah. Tour internationally. That's the goal, I mean, to become an international band where we tour Europe, Mexico, South America, because um, I feel like once you break over there in those areas... Then when we come back to the states, it'll be like it's it's just like people like our followers sometimes, you know, which just kind of sucks. But like it's like mass thinking, you know, like group think, and it's like you know, if everybody you're not, thinks hey, you're not gonna change history. Yeah. you know what I mean. Like yeah, it is so, what it is. So and then like in a sense, like you gotta go with the flow. Yeah, it's, it's like they told Bruce Lee, you know, like yeah, it's like, it's like but we'll everybody fight the water. But, the but water. this is not to say that anybody that's like picking up to what we're doing right now, like that we categorize you under that. Like now, like we really appreciate like everybody that's tuning into Droba Mahika. Like we have a lot of new people that are tuning into it for the first time who don't even know that we had another band which is really cool you that's know? bonus music yeah you know where you get in the band you go like wait they had another band with, with three exactly albums? Like, oh. but the funny thing is that like like the moment we decided to call it tropa magica everyone was like oh my god no it was like bitch when we were the comments what where was that shit at <laughs> so y'all gotta y'all gotta lay off and you know just chill out let the current flow calm the fuck down but now they're with you and now they're gonna see you yeah, well definitely. i mean it, whether, whether whether they're with us or they're not like like we appreciate those who do and reach out to us but like i've told david like you know, like, because when David and I, we practice by ourselves, like, just doing stuff, whether there's an audience or not, we're going to give it our all. I mean, I'm seeing it today. So that's, like, 
that's 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 something that's just beautiful and like for those who do ride along the journey thank you appreciate you and there's more to come yeah. awesome well i want to thank you guys i want to make sure we have enough time for one more song but where can people get the new album where can people find you online people can find us on uh or like on anything like all social media spotify iTunes. linkedin for the classy people just kidding <laughs> just kidding just kidding so what are you going to take us out with uh we're going to take you out with a little medley that's it's like an instrumental medley well the first part is actually from the new album it's called Ya viejo and then it's going to go into a we wrote it to our older selves. Yeah, this is a song that Renee and I like, wrote. The day we're hunched over, gray hair, and just like, mm-hmm. and just like, you know, just yeah. like, like this is this, this is what we wrote. Like when when our when our Quincy Jones documentary exactly. Comes out. Uh, yeah, see, yeah, man, because the Quincy Jones uh, documentary came out, it? and it's on really Netflix? and it's really more about his yeah. final act, reminiscing on his first acts, first and second act. Okay. But I really just appreciated this idea of like, hey, you got to make art and music that your future self has to live up to. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, I want to thank... for posterity. Uh, Andy, Danger Bird Record. Thank you, Andy, for making it sound good. Woo! Put some reverb on it. Thank you to Heritage Radio. Uh, this is Snacky Tunes. Tropa Magica. See you next week. One last sip of beer before here we go.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.